I'm Chris Sims. And I'm Todd McKay. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. On today's show, we're going to find out why government employees never seem to take those pay cuts along with the rest of us, and just how much could we possibly waste buying ships in Canada? You can spend a lot of money on boats. Actually, all boat owners will tell you that. Uh, When the Navy does it, it's a whole nother level. So hang on for that part. But before we get into all of that, listen, it's official. The Trudeau government has introduced legislation to ban thousands of guns owned by law-abiding licensed gun owners and use hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to pay for some of these guns. But there's a new twist to the whole situation. And you know what? I'm going to give Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the first shot at explaining it. We have, since last spring, uh, banned assault-style weapons in this country. 1,500 different models that can now no longer be used, shot in one's backyard, uh, 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 transported, uh, sold, bequeathed, transferred. Uh, Since last spring, uh, these assault-style weapons cannot be used in Canada. That was a significant step forward. We are now ensuring that uh, there is a buyback program so that uh, Canadians who lawfully purchase these weapons are treated fairly and respectfully. And uh, now that they are next to useless as weapons, are able uh, to uh, obtain fair compensation for that. So I want you to notice something really specific in that quote. The Prime Minister says licensed gun owners will be able to hand over their guns to get compensation, but he does not say they're required to. Okay, what? (laughs) Like, I'm actually confused now. Uh, We've been talking about this for a long time. You mentioned this before we went on the air, and I'm really confused. Are they banning several types and styles of firearms, or are they not? What's the deal? Yeah, when we were talking about this before coming on, you actually thought I was wrong. Let's just be honest about that. That's what you thought. Okay, on the off chance that the Prime Minister's explanation was a little unclear for a, you know, a few of you out there, here's how CBC explained it. Quote, the voluntary program will provide financial compensation to gun owners who give up their banned weapons. So here's what's happening. The government is, quote unquote, banning thousands of kinds of guns. The, the definition of those guns are, is pretty arbitrary, very similar. Other guns are not banned. But you can't sell them, you can't buy them, you can't shoot them. That's what the ban means. If they're on the list for whatever reason, can't buy them, can't shoot them, can't uh, sell them. But because they're essentially useless now, the government will pay you for them if you want to turn them in. That's the part that's going to cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. But on the other hand, if you want to keep them, you can. You just can't shoot them. Can't buy them, can't sell them, but you can keep them. So the government's looking at spending hundreds of millions of dollars to buy some of these guns because they're dangerous, but other people can keep some of them if they want to. You just can't use them. It's very bizarre. It's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money. And honestly, it really looks like the government's contorting itself in all kinds of weird positions on this situation because it's worried about legal challenges, because it doesn't make sense. They're all over the place. They're trying to look like they're doing something, but really uh, it seems to be just creating a really expensive mess. 
What a way to write a law. It just looks like a dog's breakfast at this point. But you and I are both firearms owners, legal, law-abiding firearms owners. I was raised in rural BC on hunted meat. I live in BC now. There are literally bears in my yard at least twice a year. So I need one as an essential tool in my house. You manage to get out hunting whenever you can get away from work and you make a great deer sausage. And you took a close look at the actual wording of this legislation. Apart from the messiness, what else jumps out at you? Yeah, the thing that really jumps out at me is the price tag on this situation. We know it's big, but that's about all we know about it because the government really hasn't figured out how much it's going to spend. So the initial estimates was about $200 million. Then we started saying three, $400 million. Latest I've seen from uh, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair is about $600 million. Now that the government's making it essentially voluntary, Perhaps it will cost somewhat less if people don't actually uh, uh, use the program. But on the other hand, when was the last time you heard of a government program coming in under budget? Like, I think you still, if you're betting on the over-under on this, I think you still got to bet the over. You remember the long gun registry. It was only supposed to cost $2 million. It ended up costing $2 billion, billion with a B, $2 billion. So This is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. The government doesn't even know how much it's going to cost. It's going to be a truckload of money. It's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money at a time when we really can't afford to be wasting money. But on the other side of it, we're still not seeing any evidence that's going to make things safer. So it's arbitrarily apparently banning some guns, but not others. Some guns will be bought back, but others people can keep. It's really hard to find any evidence that this is going to make Canadians safer. But listen, don't don't take my word for it. You know, I'm a guy who fills the freezer a little bit when it gets uh, gets a little bit empty with you know, an old deer rifle. We decided to to check in with what the experts are saying. So we checked in with the National Police Federation. The Federation put out a position paper when this policy came out. Uh, and I'm just going to quote straight from it. Government programs should target crime reduction capabilities that are centered on law enforcement investigative strategies rather than measures that do very little to address their goal to increase public safety. Now, the National Police Federation, it's not just some fly-by-night crew. This is the union that represents the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, police officers across the country. But we decided to go even another level on this and actually talk to the National Police Federation. Brian Sovey uh, did an interview with us on the podcast a little while ago. He is a police officer. He served in the RCMP. He's been in scary situations where criminals have guns. But here's what he had to say about this policy. We need to talk about funding. So whether it's funding of integrated border enforcement teams, whether it's funding of uh, different law enforcement agencies through the RCMP firearms program, the National Weapons Enforcement Support Team, whether it's funding for intelligence services to assist in identifying those funnels or criminal organizations that are sending guns north, um, that's kind of where I think we should be prioritizing before we start talking about um, modifying regulations of the legal, legally obtained firearms in Canada. Exactly. 
uh, it's not usually the legal firearms owners in Canada who are causing most of these problems. Uh, those folks are pretty big on following rules, whereas gang members and criminals and people who do stuff like that, not so much big on the rule following. Lots of law-abiding firearms owners in Canada are still going to get really screwed over by this legislation. And Cassandra Parker's one of them. She spoke with us a while ago. She's that mother of five kids who runs a hunting and fishing gear shop up in Prince George, British Columbia. And she sees this not only as an attack on her business, but her actual way of life too. So beyond the shop, this means my freedoms as a Canadian citizen. This isn't just about an object, a firearm. A firearm is a tool, right? It's no different than my chainsaw or my quad if I'm out hunting and I need something to help me. But when you start taking property away from Canadians without a conversation, uh, without a discussion in Parliament, it means that you can do that with other things. It means I don't know in the future what kind of world my Canadian children will be living in, right? At what point can the government take other freedoms away from my family? Man, that Cassandra Parker, five kids, runs her own business, taking the federal government to court. She's got some crazy hobbies, let me she tell does. you. But listen, <laughs> Uh, we want to tell you about this stuff, not just to complain about it. You can go to the coffee shop and do that. We're wanting to actually do something about it. So one of the things that uh, our supporters have chipped in on across the country is uh, we're trying to go to court with Cassandra Parker. So she's partnered up with the National Firearms Association. They're the ones leading the charge on this court fight. But we've applied for intervener status. That means we can send a lawyer there to make arguments on behalf of taxpayers. Is your money on the line. You should have a say on this. We want to have a lawyer there to make those arguments. We've done that for other things on pipelines and carbon taxes, uh, major issues like that, and been uh, and have made some uh, a really important difference that way. We want to do that here as well. We're also uh, running a petition right now, collecting thousands of signatures from Canadians who are worried about their tax dollars being wasted on this program. We've got that on taxpayer.com. Check it out and become part of this. This is Deep Dive, the part of the show that we take a closer look into the important issues of the day for taxpayers. I'm your host, Franco Terrazano, and today I'll be talking to our Ontario Director Jasmine Moulton about a crazy story coming out of Ontario where provincial politicians actually laughed. They actually laughed at one of their colleagues who suggested that they should take a pay cut. Well, Jasmine, why don't you tell our listeners what actually happened? Sure. Well, I know a lot of our supporters are pretty fired up when I shared this story on social media. So I'm sure they'll be, if people haven't heard, they'll be fired up to hear this now. So what happened in Ontario last week was there's an independent MPP member of provincial parliament, Roman Babber, and he put forth a private member's bill. He suggested that we should reduce Ontario politicians' salaries from their current pay, which amounts to about uh, 2,200 a week down to CERB levels, which is 500 a week. Uh, and he said that politicians should have to be on CERB level pay until all provincial emergency orders are lifted. Um, now, this was voted down by uh, Ontario politicians in the legislature, but Franco, it's what happened next that was so outrageous. Here's what happened. Progressive Conservative government house leader, Paul Calandra, responded to Babber's motion. He tabled a counter motion that would reduce only Babber's pay to CERB levels. So he singled out Babber and said, you know what? 
you suggested that we take pay cuts. We're going to make a mockery out of you. And you're the only one who we're going to put forth this bill that you're going to take a pay cut. And it was shocking to see, um, you know, in their own arrogance and, and <laughs> like, they were just so out to lunch, the progressive conservatives, the NDP and the liberals all voted unanimously in support of Calandra's motion. And again, Franco, the whole point of his motion was just to make a mockery, make a joke out of the one MPP in Ontario who had the audacity to suggest that politicians maybe take a pay cut. Yeah, how dare someone suggest that these politicians high up on the mountain even take a pay cut and feel the financial burdens that everyone else is feeling? Ah, oh, it really just it really does grind my gears and I think it shows you just how out of touch politicians can be that they're mocking the very suggestion that these politicians share in the financial burdens that everyone else is feeling. And of course this is coming against the backdrop of all the job losses that families have been struggling with over the past year. Now, Jasmine, just out of curiosity, I mean, how, how does uh, politicians pay out there in Ontario compare to, to the pay or the income of, of your typical family? Ontario MPPs start off at 116000 a year. So Franco, there's a lot of them earning a lot more than that, depending on their role. If you're a minister, for example, you're the premier, you're making more than that, but they all start at at least 116000 bucks a year, taxpayer funded six figure salary. Now I looked at StatsCan uh, and they only had obviously statistics from before the pandemic, but the median household income in Ontario is 61,400. So, you know, almost half of what the average politician in Ontario starts out with is the median income for households, not even, you know, both people are earning that in a household. That's the total median household income in Ontario. But the really shocking part, I think, is that just a day after Paul Calandra had been, you know, laughing at the idea that he take a pay cut, the Financial Accountability Office in Ontario released job numbers showing total job loss from last year alone. So in 2020, the province of Ontario shut over 355,000 jobs. So we've got hundreds of thousands of job loss, and yet the politicians in our legislature are laughing at the idea that maybe they share in that, uh, that burden. And it, it actually gets worse because, you know, it wasn't only people who lost their jobs that were affected by the pandemic. There were a lot of people who, for example, worked fewer hours because of the pandemic. And when you factor those people in, the total number of jobs affected in Ontario goes up to 765,000, or technically the pandemic affected one in 10 jobs in 2020 in Ontario. But Franco, January was a doozy of a month. In January, so the first month of this year, we lost another 154,000 jobs in Ontario. So, I mean, this goes beyond being tone deaf. I called it really callous that they could actually stand there laughing at the suggestion they take pay cuts, given what's going on in the province. Yeah, so you have thousands. The private sector is shedding jobs by the thousands. And yet the politicians who are supposed to be the representatives of the people are laughing at the idea of pay cuts. I mean, it's obviously completely out of touch, but I'm going to go even further and I'm going to call it greedy. I mean, every single politician across Canada should have and should still take pay cuts. I mean, we have so many people struggling and we need our politicians uh, to be able to understand and show leadership 
And, and that means they need to be taking pay cuts. Now, Jasmine, I think, I think some of the pushback that you may get here, and I know I've heard this as well, is, uh, you know, people might be doing the math and thinking, well, okay, we can cut politicians' pay, but that's not going to go very far in fixing budget problems. So now how would you respond to someone playing devil's advocate like that? Well, you're right that usually our listeners are uh, math-inclined folk. They obviously care about numbers and, and the debts that our, our country and our politicians at the provincial level are racking up. They're not wrong when they say cutting politician pay isn't going to fix our financial problems. Because if you look, for example, Ontario has 124 politicians working at Queen's Park, our provincial legislature. And at 116000 a pop, at least, you know, cutting their salary even down to zero isn't going to save even a billion dollars. And our deficit's 38 billion this year, and the debt's approaching 400 billion. So this wouldn't be, cutting politician pay alone would not fix the province's financial problems. But Franco, here's why we're focusing on politicians. It's because they need the moral authority uh, to ask the entire government of Ontario, meaning the bureaucracy, all of the people who depend on taxpayers for their paycheck, they need to take pay cuts first so that they can ask everyone else to take a pay cut as well. So if you look, for example, Ontario has 1.3 million government employees on payroll. Now, government employees represent the biggest operational expense to taxpayers every year. Their compensation accounts for about 50% of spending or $72 billion. Now, our listeners will already know this, but reports have already shown that government employees, when you compare them to their counterparts outside of government, well, in Ontario, they earn a 10.3% wage premium. So they're doing similar work, you know, when everything else is the same, they're earning a 10.3% wage premium. They also retire sooner. They have better pensions, better benefits. So simply bringing all of that stuff back down to reality, back down to what the taxpayers who pay their salaries enjoy, that could save Ontario billions of dollars. And that would be a big chunk. That would actually shave a significant chunk off of our deficit this year. So that's why we're focusing on politicians because they can't ask um, with any sort of credibility the rest of government to uh, tighten their belts to save some money unless they start with themselves first. So that's why we say, you know, politicians, you need to take a pick up first, then ask the rest of government to do so. Yeah, you make you make a bunch of good points there. Um, I mean, first, obviously, politicians should never be financially detached from the realities facing their constituents. Um, but also, hey, we we have to tackle the the labor uh, the cost elephant in the room here, which is the bureaucracy. And before that, politicians are going to be able to sell the cuts to the bureaucracy. They need to take a pay cut. They need to show leadership, and the uh, top bureaucrats also need to show leadership there. But, you know, all of this really brings to mind a report that was released by SecondStreet.org. Uh, Colin Craig, formerly of the CTF with Second Street now, asked governments, provincial governments, the feds and major cities to provide information on the last time their unionized employees took a pay cut. And well, surprise, surprise, eh, I guess not really a surprise for our listeners, but the feds didn't have any records of pay cuts 
for their government employees. Um, I believe in, in Alberta, my province, the last time government employees took a pay cut was a 5% cut back in the mid-90s. Throughout the COVID-19, the lockdowns in 2020, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we found through Freedom of Information requests that thousands of provincial government bureaucrats in Alberta, not only did they not take cuts, but they were receiving pay raises. Thousands of provincial government bureaucrats received pay raises in 2020. Um, so we're, we're seeing here that the cost elephant in the room is labor costs, but instead, unfortunately, of giving taxpayers some relief, we're, we've been seeing the opposite going on so far. Yeah, what's really funny, too, is about that report when Colin just said, have governments ever really taken pay cuts? His conclusion was that it's more likely for a government employee to be struck by lightning than to be struck with a pay cut, uh, which is pretty crazy in itself. But Franco, I really want to just mention for our listeners, it's not like we're against you know, it's not like we have anything against government employees. We're thankful for the work that most of them do. Uh, but the problem is when governments have more employees than they can afford, and then they turn around and give them raises that they definitely can't afford, that means that those governments are racking up debt that's going to drive everybody else's taxes up. So you knew before I joined the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, I ran a business. And, you know, if I had a really good year, profits were good. Uh, that's when you can give your employees a raise, maybe hire someone else. Um, you know, giving employees a raise, keep the good ones around, that sort of thing. But Franco, the problem is these governments are giving out raises and hiring more staff when they're going trillions of dollars into debt. So it's, it's just ludicrous. The Fraser Institute just released a report that showed combined, when you combine provincial and federal government debt, but that's amounting to $2 trillion. And this has doubled in just a few years since 2007. So what we're saying is, you know, if you've got this massive debt problem, which governments across the country have, why aren't they laying off employees and reducing their pay? Yeah, that's a great question. That is a great question. And it reminds me of another question that I've had on my mind for quite some time. And it's how many more Canadians need to lose their jobs before government union bosses are willing to take a pay cut? You know, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear that, that answer from, from government union bosses. And, and, you know, it's been a really tough situation, especially for a private sector. You know, so many businesses have had to have that heart-wrenching conversation where they bring their employees into their into their office a lot of times they're friends and, and they have to lay off their staff or, or or tell them that they're going to be taking a significant pay cut you know it's not an easy and it's not a pleasant conversation for anyone to have right but the, but the problem is is that we have massive debt problems and it can't just be taxpayers in the private sector doing all the heavy lifting here and it's unfortunate to say this, but it has to be said. And so far throughout this downturn, we're not all in this together because the private sector has been taking it on the chin and it really has been business as usual in government. But, you know, I do think, I think we'd, I'd like to finish this segment off on a bit of a positive note. And I, and I know there has been a number of stories um, with politicians, not just in Canada, but around the world who have been taking some pay cuts. So, so Jasmine, why don't you give um, some of the politicians who are leading by example, a quick shout out here? Definitely. So yeah, 
let's not be too depressing for our listeners. There are some politicians in Canada doing the right thing. So a couple that we would draw your attention to, there were city councils in Burnaby and Lethbridge, which both voluntarily took a 10% pay cut, but it also doesn't stop there. There's Halifax's mayor, uh, Mike Savage, who he actually took a 20% voluntary pay cut to show solidarity with taxpayers. Now, unfortunately, uh, there's one glaring omission from this list, which is our prime minister. So Justin Trudeau, did not take a pay cut, uh, despite our demands, our very public demands that he do so. Um, and actually, he did one worse for taxpayers. He gave every MP a raise back on April 1st, uh, same day he raised the carbon tax, actually. Uh, all of them got a pay raise um, at our expense. And again, this isn't just money that comes out of thin air. This is money coming out of taxpayers' pockets going in to give well-compensated politicians a bigger raise. So Franco, I know there was another politician out in your neck in the woods that you've interviewed before who took a pay cut as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, our MLA, Drew Barnes, in, in Alberta, we interviewed him on the uh, on the podcast before. He, he was pushing um, his colleagues, his politicians to take 20% pay cut. He was also calling for top bureaucrats who are on the who are on the sunshine list and making more than MLAs to also take a 20% pay cut. And that would be uh, somewhat similar to what happened in New Zealand, right, where you saw the prime minister, you saw the cabinet, and you also saw top bureaucrats take a 20% pay cut. So it was a good, um, it's a good push by MLA Barnes, he's also donating 20% of his paychecks, I saw that to charity. So so good leadership there. And, and I guess it turns out Surprise, surprise that it is possible for politicians to do the right thing and cut their pay. I mean, sometimes the way way politicians talk, you would have thought that uh, cutting politician pay would go against the laws of gravity. But it turns out, no, it is, in fact, possible. <laughs> well, Jasmine, thanks so much for, for coming on the show, for holding these Ontario politicians accountable. And for our listeners out there, I mean, this is a huge budget item. So, so please help us push politicians to do the right thing, to lower their pay. And you can do that by contacting your local uh, politician, provincially, federally, and municipally. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. It's time for Waste Watch. This is when we make fun of all the dumb things that governments sink our money in. Uh, or, you know, sometimes we, we cry about it. Uh, today we have our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, who's here to chat about a pretty massive bit of waste. Uh, Aaron, what do you have for us? Well, you know, Renault, I know this segment's called Waste Watch, so we talk about waste every week, but I'm pretty confident that this might be the single biggest amount of waste that we've talked about in this segment. Uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office just released a report on uh, ships for the Royal Canadian Navy. And the long story short is they're about $50 billion over budget, and we still don't have the ships and we won't see any for almost a decade. I think you're right. That that might be the most massive amount of waste ever. Uh, so maybe you can back up a bit and explain just how this happened. Yeah, I think uh, something of this size deserves a little bit of background. It, it, it all started back in 2008 uh, under Stephen Harper's government. Uh, they, they concluded that our Navy needs new ships. Uh, so they developed a program called the Canadian Surface Combatant Program, the CSC. And this was going to buy 15 ships. Like these are warships. So these are, this is serious business. These are not little tugboats we're talking about. Um, and when they started to nail down the numbers on this program in 2012, the price tag was for the 15 ships was $26 billion. And the first ship was supposed to be delivered in 2025. Now, if you fast forward a few years by 2017, the PBO did a study 
Now the price tag's $62 billion, up from 26. And then this recent report last week from the Parliamentary Budget Office again says now $77 billion. Um, and that's if the program stays on time, which it is not. Uh, and if it delay, any further delays happen, then we're looking at $80 billion or more for these shifts. You know, the, these are jaw-dropping figures. Uh, it's, it's funny when it's just a couple of thousand dollars being wasted here and there, but $50 billion, it's pretty hard to lay off. So do we know why this happened? Yeah, in typical government fashion, not only have things gone wrong, but there doesn't seem to be anybody who can explain why they went wrong. Um, the Department of National Defense can't say. Uh, the Trudeau government does what every government does and points to the last guy. Uh, but of course, you know, Trudeau's been in office for more than five years now. So I think it's, it starts to get difficult to blame your predecessors. Uh, and then another party that might be able to provide some answers, but hasn't so far, is, is Irving Shipyard. This is the shipyard that's building or will be building, apparently, these ships in Halifax, um, you know, they have the contract to build the ships, so maybe they could shed some light on exactly why the cost has ballooned so much. So this thing is now projected to cost three times more than what was budgeted. Is there anything we can do, or are we just going to be stuck paying this bill? Yeah, there are some other options. I mean, one of them is to scrap the program and start with something new. Um, considering we don't have any ships yet, it's not as if we'd be, you know, leaving half-built ships on the dock here. And the PBO report looked at two other models of ship, uh, one used by the British Navy and one by the U.S. Navy. Uh, one of those models would be a little bit cheaper than, than what we're building, and the other would be considerably cheaper. Uh, so those are the other options that, uh, in theory, are on the table. Okay, but are they com comparable? Like, are, are, are these ships only similar in the fact that they both have hulls and they float on water? Or are, can, can they do similar roles and fulfill the same kind of missions? Yeah, I mean, they're all warships. Obviously, this is a very specialized area. And some experts say, well, they're not comparable and it's apples and oranges and they have different capabilities. Um, and I'm sure that's true. I don't claim to be a, an expert in, uh, in naval warships. Uh, they do see comparable enough that the, the Parliamentary Budget Office is, is using them as comparisons. Um, and, you know, they are all ships used by major world navies. So I think in that sense, uh, these, are not, uh, these are not untested ships coming from uh, from theory, they are from the real world. And would it be realistic to just scrub the entire program and start over? Wouldn't that just lead to more delays, higher costs, and, you know, just no ships for the foreseeable future? That's true. But then again, that's all we've had to this point anyway. So all we've had are delays and higher costs. So it's hard to see how we'd be worse off on the current trajectory. Um, you know, the process is just a total mess. Uh, there's basic questions that people have, like, why can't you hold a builder, you know, to account if they sign a contract to build ships at a certain price? Uh, and even if you set the, the price aside, uh, why are the ships six years late? What does that have to do with the price? Um, there don't seem to be any consequences when, uh, when these contracts balloon, you know, by factors of tens of billions. So what could we do with future contracts? Because we're going to have other military procurement contracts in the future. What, what could we do to protect taxpayers against those things? How, how can we structure them differently? Yeah, well, they need to find ways to hold uh, a contracting party to account and protect taxpayers when costs uh, overrun. I mean, the shipbuilders in this country have really done a, a class act job convincing politicians that shipbuilding jobs are the most important thing, more important than actually getting the ships built, more important than protecting taxpayers. And so the result is a lot of politicians are scared um, you know, to put shipbuilding jobs at risk. 
um, even if it means tens of billions of dollars in extra costs and delays. So it's obviously not just terrible news for taxpayers who have to pay the bill, but it's terrible for the Navy because the delays mean that they don't have any ships. And I'm guessing this isn't the only fiasco we have to deal with uh, when it comes to military procurement, isn't it? No, and I'm sure we've detailed some of them on the podcast and we'll do others in the future. I mean, you've got a long list uh, just uh, for the Navy, sticking with the Navy for the, for a moment, supply ships for the Navy. Um, I don't know what they'll be supplying if we don't get these new ships, but uh, they were supposed to build a couple of them. Um, those ran over budget. Uh, they may now cost $4 billion instead of just over a billion. So that's a significant cost overrun. Uh, you know, the military has some pistols, which believe it or not, date from the Second World War era. Uh, they haven't been replaced, although I'm told just it's coming in 2022, apparently. <laughs> and uh, and fighter jets, uh, this is the next sort of big boondoggle waiting to happen. Um, we have a fleet of CF-18s. They're 40 years old. Most of us are not driving cars that are even 20 years old. And our military <laughs> has 40-year-old jets. Uh, and we haven't figured out what we're replacing them with. So that's that's probably going to be the subject of a future episode of Waste Watch, I'd imagine. I don't think I could take another multi-billion dollar military procurement fiasco, but I'm sure we're going to have to talk about it uh, for a future segment. Well, thanks for bringing this to, uh, to our attention, Aaron. All right. That is the end of the show. But before we go, so we kind of have fun reading like the mean tweets, the people who are criticizing us. We never run out of those. <laughs> but every so often somebody says something nice. There are people who say nice things on social media. Samer, tell us about that one. Yeah, we landed one. Uh, so there was this big issue going around in the Kamloops area about a bureaucrat blowing through $500,000 in taxpayers' money in five years, including renting something called a champagne room. And so we'll have lots more on that story for you next week on the show. Uh, but I went on Twitter and asked anybody if they had been in a champagne room. And lo and behold, <laughs> Catherine Swift, she's a longtime former spokesperson for the CFIB, tweeted back at us and said, quote, and we keep being told governments need more of our money. All governments waste our tax dollars in the billions. No need for any tax hikes. Get a grip on wasteful spending, abuse of sick days, overcompensation, etc., and taxes will decline. End quote. Yeah, Catherine's right on the right track there. Listen, there are folks in government who do good work, but there's lots of waste that happens too. And that's... Um, so infuriating when people work so hard for the money they earn, they send it to government and then see it just go up and smoke in a champagne room. So we're going to stay on top of that kind of stuff. That's why we go after government waste because it's your money. Uh, thank you so much uh, to all of you for listening. Thanks to Jimbo, also known as James Wood. He's our investigative reporter, digs up a ton of this kind of waste. Uh, but he also edits the show, which is a good thing because if it had all my mistakes in it, it'd be twice as long and twice as annoying. So Good work, Jimbo, and uh, all of you out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you know somebody else who might like the show, you know, send it to them. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.